0: Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised." There can be no doubt that any alleged encounter with creatures from another world is already, by definition, profoundly bizarre. Such reports really cover the full spectrum of the odd and of high strangeness, with these accounts reliably stirring debate, wonder and awe. Yet, there are some cases that go even beyond this to fully catapult themselves into the furthest reaches of the extreme fringe of the bazaar, hovering out beyond all attempts to comprehend or explain them. We'll take a look at just a few. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. I post a new episode every day of the week coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness. The crew of 309 aboard the USS Cyclops disappeared without a trace. And now, 100 years later, we're still left with more questions than answers. Mickey was arrested and charged with slicing the throat of one of his best friends. And he had good reason. After all, His friend owed him $35. A grandfather tells his grandson about the time he lived in a haunted house. Wander around one particular U.S. park and you may come across a soldier who lost his head to a cannonball. Strange dreams happen to us all, but what does it mean if you dream about spiders? Police respond to a 911 call, but they arrive a few years too late. Vegetable men, space fairies, how bizarre can alien encounters get? We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Certainly one of the more downright bizarre cases comes to us from the U.S. state of West Virginia, where in July of 1968, a local man by the name of Jennings Frederick was out bow hunting in the rural backwoods just outside of Fairmont, West Virginia. At some point, he allegedly heard a high-pitched, unearthly sound that he would describe as sounding like a recording running at exaggerated speed. Curious, Jennings searched about for the origin of this surreal noise, and this is when he would come across a very strange sight indeed. There, in the brush, stood a seven-foot-tall, semi-humanoid entity with an exceedingly thin, almost skeletal frame, long ears, and stalk-like arms that were almost like tendrils and which ended in slender, seven-inch-long fingers, tipped with some sort of needles or thorns, as well as suction cups. The whole of the anomalous creature was described as green and very plant-like in nature, as if it were part animal and part plant. The whole time Frederick watched it, that incessant chattering sound reverberated around him, and he suddenly realized that he could make out words within the alien noise, like glimpses of meaning from white noise, which he took to say, You need not fear me. I wish to communicate. I come as a friend. We know of you all. I come in peace. I wish medical assistance. I need your help. As Frederick stood there, wide-mouthed in bewilderment, the mysterious being purportedly suddenly lashed out with one of its stalk-like arms with blinding speed to wrap him in an iron grip. The needles or thorns on his fingers then apparently pierced the startled man's skin and began to draw blood. But rather than the pain, he found himself drawn to the thing's eyes, which seemed to rapidly switch back and forth from red to yellow in a hypnotizing, oscillating cycle that held him in thrall and dulled his senses. After about two minutes of this, the otherworldly plant monster reportedly let him go and took off in a sprint up a nearby embankment in great 25-foot-long bounds, followed shortly after by a deep, thrumming noise that Frederick would later speculate to have been the sound of the creature's spaceship. For years, Frederick kept this undoubtedly absurd-sounding story to himself out of fear of ridicule. But in 1976, he would relate it to the paranormal researcher Gray Barker, who would then include it in his newsletter. The story would be brought to even greater attention when it was mentioned in the late Brad Steiger's 1978 book, Alien Meetings. Was this an alien? Some sort of cryptid? Or what? Whatever it was, the Vegetable Man of West Virginia is certainly one of the most bizarre encounters on record. Vegetable men are weird enough, but there are other encounters with unidentified, often humanoid creatures that are every bit as bizarre. On the evening of November 17, 1974, something well beyond normal was witnessed by several motorists along a lonely stretch of road on Bald Mountain in the U.S. state of Washington. The first of the witnesses was a man named Ernest Smith, who would say of the entity he caught in his headlights, it was horse-sized, covered with scales and standing on four rubbery legs with suckers like octopus tentacles. Its head was football-shaped with an antenna sticking up. The thing gave off this green, iridescent light. Another couple driving by at the time by the name of Mr. and Mrs. Roger Ramsbaugh also claimed to have seen the creature and its ethereal glow. Interestingly, just three days previous there had been a report of a UFO crashing to Earth in the region, perhaps suggesting a connection. The researcher and author Jim Brandon also mentioned in his book Weird America that at the time, Lewis County Sheriff William Wister had led an investigation into the reports, but that he had been shut down by the Air Force and NASA, after which teams of men had been brought in to search the area, which Brandon would describe as a special NASA team, including a heavily armed military unit wearing uniforms with no insignia. But what could this creature have been? Was it just a newspaper hoax on a slow news day? If none of this has been weird enough for you, then how about floating, disembodied alien brains? In August 17, 1971, there was a perhaps even stranger alien encounter from Palos Verdes, California. Witnesses John Hodges and Pete Rodriguez were allegedly headed to their car at 2 a.m. when they saw off through the trees a faint, mysterious glow emanating from beyond. They got into their car, switched on the headlights, and there, suspended in the beams of light from their vehicle, were what they described as two large bluish entities that looked just like disembodied human brains, hovering right in the middle of the road and surrounded by clouds of vapor that seemed to cling to them. The larger one of the brains described as having a prominent red spot like an eye set within it, and this is the one that began to move towards the vehicle for purposes unknown. The two terrified men understandably got out of there as fast as they possibly could, and it was later noticed that they had two hours of missing time. In 1976, Hodges would undergo hypnotic regression after years of being plagued by nightmares And wondering what had happened to them out on that lonely road. Under hypnosis, Hodges revealed that he had dropped Rodriguez off at home and arrived at his own house to find the larger brain waiting for him there, which had then telepathically spoken to him. He claimed that he had been taken into the brain's ship to some sort of control room, where it was revealed that they were merely telepathic tools being used by other aliens this time more akin to the gray aliens typically ascribed in more mainstream reports, although in this case they stood over seven feet tall. These master aliens then apparently claimed they were from a place called Zeta Reticuli and showed Hodges various images of nuclear war and destruction as they explained that the human race had grown too powerful for its own good. He was also shown another planet that had been completely destroyed by another race that had met the same fate, and was admonished that humankind would be the instruments of their own fate, telling him, take the time to understand yourselves. The time draws near when you shall need to. Hodges then says that he felt a potent buzzing sensation in the back of his head and found himself back in his own car. In the years after, he became convinced that these aliens had implanted him with what he called a translator cell and that he received frequent telepathic communications from them through this device in which they made dire predictions such as an apocalyptic war in the Middle East and the future widespread use of nuclear weapons. Many of the prophecies given by these aliens have turned out to have not come to pass which sort of raises an eyebrow even further than it already is. Whether you think this story and its space brains has any truth to it at all or not, you have to admit it is an incredibly strange tale all the same. The United States certainly does not hold the monopoly on such mind-bending, weird cases, and almost as absurd as floating brains is a case involving basically floating sentient bags of jelly which were apparently witnessed on December 20, 1958, in Sweden. On this day, 25-year-old Hans Gustafsson and 30-year-old Stig Rydberg were on their way along Route 45 from Hongnes to Heisenberg in the early morning hours along a foggy road that had such poor visibility that the two friends decided to pull over. As they walked about outside the vehicle, they soon noticed through the haze that there was some sort of glow emanating from the surrounding forest nearby. The two decided to hike off into the darkened, glow-frosted trees to try and see where the light was coming from, and after penetrating around 150 feet into the woods, they allegedly came across the source of the glow, which proved to be far more bizarre than they had anticipated. There before them was a disc-like object, resting on two legs around two feet long, the whole of which cast a scintillating glow of ever-changing colors. Even odder than the sight of this apparent flying saucer was what could be seen cavorting about the vicinity, which were three-foot-long amorphous blobs that Rydberg would describe thus. They were like protozoa, just a bit darker than most sort of a bluish color hopping and jumping around the saucer like globs of animated jelly. Nowhere on the bodies were any visible limbs or sensory organs, nor any other discernible features, and it was as if they were just pulsating gobs of gelatinous goo that could somehow levitate over the ground. Things got rather tense very quickly when these unusual entities suddenly surrounded the two puzzled men and purportedly began to engulf their limbs within their throbbing masses, described as feeling like magnetic dough, while at the same time exuding a terrible stench like ether and burnt sausage. It seemed as if the blob-like creatures were trying to drag the incessantly terrified witnesses toward the glimmering disk, and no matter how hard the two witnesses fought back and struggled, it did little good. By chance, Rydberg finally managed to tear himself free and run back towards their car with the alien blobs in hot pursuit. When he reached the vehicle, he leaned heavily on the car's horn, piercing the night with a wall of noise in an effort to draw anyone's attention to their plight, but which also seemed to have the effect of startling the creatures enough to let go of Gustafson. The blobs then huddled under their craft, filed inside it, and shot off away into the night sky, leaving behind a screeching, whistling blare, that nauseating stink, and two very shaken men who found that they were covered in strange bruises and cuts. Gustafsson and Rydberg perhaps understandably kept the story to themselves for some time, but when it finally came out it became a minor sensation in Sweden. The two witnesses were also interviewed by police And although the story was without a doubt off the wall, they could find no sign of any hoaxing going on, and even when the two were secretly monitored when they thought they were alone, they did not let on that there was any lying or trickery going on. Gustafson and Rydberg were also found to be in fine physical and psychological health, and in the end, police concluded that the men really seemed to have been traumatized by what they at least truly believed they had seen, whatever that was. This particular case of what are commonly referred to as the Domston Blobs was also covered by Steiger in his book Strangers from the Skies, with the author himself referring to the outlandish monsters as terrible flying jelly bags." It is difficult to discern just what it was that these two men saw, or at least thought they saw and with no other accounts anywhere near it, we will probably never know. Moving over to England, we have the weird case that appeared in in Times in the summer of 1988. The incident occurred near Birmingham in the West Midlands, where on January 4, 1979, a Jean Hingley was out working in her garden. At some point, she looked up to see a glowing orange sphere appear to hover over her home, which gradually changed to white and inexplicably caused her dog to collapse to the ground, seemingly paralyzed. Things got even stranger still when some tiny fairy-like entities suddenly came buzzing from down out of the sky to enter the house. The article would describe these beings as, "...they were about 3.5 feet tall and dressed in a silvery tunic with six silver buttons down the front. They had large eyes like black diamonds with a glittering luster, set into wide white faces with no nose to speak of and a simple line for the mouth. Their heads were covered by transparent helmets like goldfish bowls, surmounted by small lights. Their limbs were silvery green ending in simple tapering points with no apparent hands or feet. They had large oval wings which looked as if they were made of a thin, transparent paper covered with dozens of glittering multicolored dots like braille dots. Each being was surrounded by a halo, and numerous very thin streamers hung down from their shoulders. They hovered and flew about the room with their arms clasped in front of their chests, while their legs hung down stiffly. Their wings didn't flap like those of birds, but seemed to be more for display and merely fluttered gently, or occasionally folded inwards like a concertina. Their expression, like a dead person's face, never changed during the encounter, which lasted for about an hour. These creatures apparently spoke in unison, in a low, gruff voice, and would occasionally emit a laser-like beam of light from their helmets, which had the effect of dazzling the witnesses, and creating a burning sensation. The creatures were also quite mischievous and troublesome, knocking objects over, shaking the Christmas tree, jumping on the sofa, banging on walls, and generally making a nuisance of themselves. They would continue this cavorting, occasionally stunning Hingley with their enigmatic laser weapons until they were called to attention by a sudden beeping noise coming from the garden. The creatures then flitted back outside, oddly carrying with them pieces of mince pie that they had pilfered from the kitchen and entered the large orange craft that had been hovering over the house earlier, which was now sitting upon the ground and sported portholes and two long antenna-like structures that glowed blue. When the craft was gone, Hingley claimed that she had been incapacitated by an inexplicable pain, and when she snapped out of it, she realized that there was a tiny burn mark in her forehead. An inspection of the area turned up what appeared to be eight-foot-long tracks, like the tracks of a tank's treads, and additionally it was found that various electrical appliances in the home had been mysteriously fried by some unknown force. What were these fairy-like beings and what did they want? It is unknown. Another account first came to the public attention in a 1968 issue of Flying Saucer Review and comes from nearby France, where in 1962 a businessman was driving along a rural road in Var on a dark and rainy night. As he drove along the desolate stretch of road peering through the torrent of rain, the witness allegedly noticed a group of figures huddled in the middle of the road as he rounded a bend. He at first took these to be people, perhaps in need of help, but would soon find out that these were no human beings. The witness would explain, My window was down and I leaned my head out slightly to see what was the matter. It was then that I saw beasts, some kind of bizarre animals with the heads of birds and covered with some sort of plumage which were hurtling themselves from two sides toward my car. Terrified, I wound up my window accelerated like a madman and then stopped 150 meters approximately 500 feet, further on. I turned around and saw these things, these beasts, these nightmarish sort of things which were heading, with a sort of flapping of wings, towards a luminous dark blue object which hung in the air over a field on the other side of the road. On reaching it, the UFO, these birds were literally sucked into the underpart of the machine as if by a whirlwind then I heard a dull sound, clack, and the object flew off at a prodigious speed and finally disappeared. What were these bizarre bird-like beings? Since no one has seen anything like it, it's anyone's guess. Finally, we leave Europe to come to the South American country of Venezuela and a very harrowing and strange report from November of 1954. On November 28th, two witnesses by the names of Gustavo Gonzalez and Jose Ponce were driving a truck from Caracas to Petar, Venezuela, when in the early morning hours they came across an enormous glowing orb floating about six feet above the ground in front of them. Perhaps unwisely, the men stopped the truck and got out to investigate, upon which they noticed several small, three-foot-high humanoids covered in bristly hair seemed to be gathering rocks to bring aboard their craft. Gonzalez and Ponce approached and decided to try and grab one of the creatures, which turned out to be a bad idea. The small, vaguely ape-like being was apparently vastly strong, effortlessly flinging them off and then proceeding to viciously claw at them. When Gonzalez fought back by stabbing it with a knife, his weapon was found to have no effect on it at all. The struggle continued until one of the other creatures put an end to it all by firing off a stunning beam of bright light that knocked the two men to their knees, whereupon the odd beings entered their ship and shot off into the night. Medical examination would show that Gonzalez did indeed have a nasty-looking scratch mark on his body, and the two men were found to be completely sober. Making the whole case even more bizarre was a report from another witness who also claimed to have seen these creatures and to have even seen the struggle between them and the two witnesses. These are some of the most outrageous, perplexing, and even downright absurd reports of alien encounters there are, and we're left to wonder just what in the world is going on here. These are singularly peculiar cases that have no other parallel in the sightings' records and which lurk on the very fringes of the weird. What could these creatures be, or where did they come from? Why haven't they been seen more often? Are these hallucinations, illusions, hoaxes, or lies? No one really knows, and these extremely odd encounters continue to serve to stir the imagination. Strange dreams happen to us all, but what does it mean if you dream about spiders? And police respond to a 911 call, but they arrive a few years too late. Those stories and more when we return to Weird Darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the terrifying audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis. The greatly anticipated sequel to his novel Inside the Mirrors. Previously available only to Weird Darkness patrons, Into Darkness is now available worldwide. A creature, part of the darkness before God created the heavens and earth, has awakened. It had slumbered, hibernating from the light. Now it is hungry and wanting to feed. Bobby, a local kid, and the police chief have gone missing. Everyone in the small town of Standard is turning to former Chicago cop Rob Aleto to find them. But as he starts his search, more people disappear. Rob is quickly overwhelmed. The night itself seems to come alive, taking these people. Aleto must find out why and discover a way to stop it before the entire town slips into darkness. Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Frank Ronster is the Butcher Boy at Lyons Butcher Shop on Cherry Street in New York City. He was working in the rear of the store on November 25, 1891, when Michael Sliney entered the store to speak with his boss, Robert Lyons. Mickey Sliney and Bob Lyons were close friends, but that day Sliney was there on business. He and his father owned a coal and ash business and the Lyons family owed them money. Frank heard Sliney say, I want the $35 and I want it quick, see? Lyons said he did not have the money, but would pay when he was good and ready. There were more angry words exchanged, then Sliney left the store. After he left, Lyons noticed an envelope near the door. He opened it and found a note in red ink saying, please send boy up to Vestry right away, Reverend John B. Kane." Lyons sent Frank Ronister to St. James Church to see what Father Kane wanted. Father Kane looked at the note and said it was not his signature. The note was a forgery. When Frank returned to the butcher shop, he found the mother of his boss crying over his lifeless body. Robert Lyons had been murdered. There had been no witnesses to the crime. Robert's mother had been in the back room when she saw a man staggering against the door. He was covered with blood and blood was streaming from his neck. When she saw that it was her son, she screamed and said, For God's sake, tell me who did this! He replied, Mother, Mother, I'm killed. Mike Sliney did this. He fell to the floor and died at her feet." Robert Lyons had been killed with his own meat cleaver, which lay covered with blood by the side of the block. The police went searching for Michael Sliney. When he heard the detectives were looking for him, Sliney turned himself in but said that he knew nothing about the murder. The police were sure that Sliney was the killer, but they were hard-pressed to find a motive. Lyons and I were chums, said Sliney, and why should I kill him? It was hard to imagine Sliney cutting Lyons' throat over a $35 coal bill. Sliney didn't know who killed his chum, but he had some suspicions. He said Bob Lyons and his mother often quarreled, and a few days earlier, he struck her in the face. Mrs. Lyons did have a bruised eye, but said that she fell on an icebox. Slaney also cast suspicion on Bob's brother Jim. He told reporters, Bob and Jim were not very friendly. The old woman wanted Jim to have the business, and Bob would not permit Jim to come into the store of late. Jim denied any bad blood between the brothers. When the inquest began on December 1st, public sympathy was with Mickey Sliney. The bogus note from Father Kane was shown to be the linchpin of the case, but it could not be determined who had delivered it. The inquest ruled that Bob Lyons had been killed at the hands of a person or persons unknown. But a few days later, Sliney was indicted by the grand jury. With Sliney in the tombs awaiting trial, Police Inspector Thomas Burns decided it was time to give the prisoner a good questioning. Sliney had been instructed by his attorney to keep quiet until his trial, but Inspector Burns, known for his harsh interrogation techniques, the third degree, convinced Sliney to talk. Inspector Burns did not reveal what was said, but Sliney told reporters that on the day of the murder, he returned to the butcher shop because he had forgotten to ask Bob if he could borrow his dress coat. He found Mrs. Lyons and Jim in the shop quarreling with Bob. He saw Jim pick up the heavy cleaver and hurl it at Bob. As Bob reeled and fell, Sliney left as quickly as he could. The police investigated for another three months before arresting Jim Lyons on March 17th and indicting him as a co-conspirator in Bob Lyons' murder. The two men would be tried separately. In April, Inspector Burns went at Sliney again. This time, Sliney made a full confession saying, "...the statements or statement that I have heretofore made relative to myself and Bob Lyons are untrue. I am sorry that I have made them. James Lyons, whom I accused of killing his brother in the presence of Inspector Burns at police headquarters, had nothing whatsoever to do with the murder, and I am very sorry that I made such a statement." Sliney said that after refusing to pay the $35, Bob Lyons knocked him down and kicked him in the stomach. Sliney left, and spent the afternoon drinking. At 4 o'clock, he went back to the butcher shop, and he and Bob went out for a few more drinks, and before parting, Sliney gave him the forged note. After Frank Ronister left for the church, Sliney went back into the butcher shop and asked again for the money. They began to fight, and Bob Lyons, who had 30 pounds on Sliney, dragged him toward the chopping block, saying, you, I'll kill you and make a steak out of you. Sliney broke free and, believing his life was in danger, grabbed the cleaver and threw it at Lyons, hitting him in the neck. When asked about Sliney's confession, his attorney, Mr. Levy, said, it does not surprise me a bit, he is crazy. Jim Lyons' attorneys, Howe and Hummel, applied for a discharge for their client, but the district attorney refused, saying he believed Sliney was, once again, lying. When his case came to trial in June, Sliney repudiated his confession. He went back to saying that he saw Jim throw the cleaver at his brother, adding that Jim offered him $5,000 to perjure himself. Jim urged him to say that Sliney killed Bob in self-defense, believing he would be acquitted. Sliney's lawyer asserted that the murder had been a conspiracy involving Bob Lyon's mother, his brother, and his wife. Frank Ronister helped Sliney's case by testifying that Jim Lyons tried to persuade him to lie on the stand. He told Frank to swear that he saw a red-faced man hand bob the forged note. Jim told him, if you don't do what I tell you, I will fix you and that'll be the end of you. He also offered him $500 to do what he wanted. A handwriting expert testified that he had no doubt that Sliney had forged the note. Bob Lyon's widow testified that her husband was much larger than Sliney and Sliney could not wear his dress coat, as he had asserted. Inspector Burns testified that in view of the number of contradictory statements Sliney had made, nothing he said could be trusted. The jury appeared to believe the conspiracy theory but thought it included Mickey Sliney as well. They found him guilty of first-degree murder. As they filed out, one juror was heard to remark Maybe he killed Bob, and maybe he didn't, but he was an awful fool for shooting off his mouth. If he hadn't, he'd have been going out with us now. Following Sliney's conviction, James Lyons was released from custody. Michael Sliney was sentenced to be executed and would have died in the electrical chair at Sing Sing Prison, but at the urging of Sliney's friends, Governor Flower convened a committee to investigate Sliney's mental condition. After reading their report, he commuted Sliny's sentence to life in prison. My husband recently traveled out of town for work. The first night he was gone, four cops pounded on my door at 9.30, like crazy pounding. They said a woman in distress called 911 and it pinged to my address. They wanted to know if I knew anything about it or if I'd heard anything. I'd been blow-drying my hair and hadn't heard a thing. After the cops left, I got nervous and unsettled, thinking a woman in distress had recently been on my property. So I checked all my doors and windows and told my two kids to come sleep in my room. I then moved our gun to my side of the bed and eventually fell asleep. The next day, I mentioned the incident to my neighbor, and a weird look came over her face. I asked what was wrong, and she said she hadn't wanted to say anything but, that a man had murdered his wife in our home several years before. I did some research online and sure enough, she was right. Nothing weird had happened before the night of the 911 ping and nothing weird has happened since. The logical explanation is that the call was just a coincidence, but I still wonder if it was the spirit of the murdered woman calling for help that came too late. dreams and their meaning have fascinated people for ages. Ancient people had dream books and dream interpreters, and in our modern world, many people still think dreams can provide us with vital information about significant events in our daily lives. Over the years, numerous theories have been put forth in an attempt to illuminate the mystery behind human dreams. Scientists continue to study dreams, and examine to what extent they are linked to our emotions and memories. Many people wonder if dreams can foretell future events and if dreaming about certain objects, animals, or events is significant. Dreaming about spiders happens to many of us, but what does it really mean? Dream analysis is highly subjective and from a scientific point of view, it's not easy to explain but some have attempted to find the truth behind dream symbols. One such person is Cynthia Richmond, board-certified behavioral therapist, educator, speaker, and author of Dream Power. According to Cynthia Richmond, spiders are associated with manipulation. Depending on the rest of the dream, the spider may indicate that the dreamer is being manipulated or that the dreamer is the manipulator. So if you dream about spiders, you should ask yourself if you are being manipulated and what you can do about it. One way of avoiding dreams about spiders is to deal with the problem outside of the dreaming world. The dreamer should ask themselves, where in my life am I being manipulated or manipulating others, and resolve that, says Richmond. If you want to induce dreams about spiders, Richmond suggests looking at photos of spiders before bedtime and to think about them as you drift off to sleep. Throughout history, there have been many cultural depictions of spiders and these animals had a different meaning to many ancient civilizations. The spider, along with its web, is featured in mythological fables, cosmology, artistic spiritual depictions, and in oral traditions throughout the world since ancient times. In ancient Egypt, the spider was associated with the goddess Neith in her aspect as spinner and weaver of destiny. This link continuing later through the Babylonian Ishtar and the Greek Athena, who was later equated as the Roman goddess Minerva. In African mythology, the spider is personified as a creation deity Anansi, and as a trickster character in African traditional folklore. Spiders are depicted in indigenous Australian art, in rock and bark paintings, and for clan totems. Spiders in their webs are associated with a sacred rock in central Arnhem Land on the Bernanku clan estate of the Rimbarga Kine people. In Greco-Roman mythology, Arachna was a mortal woman and talented weaver who challenged Athena, goddess of wisdom and crafts, and was transformed into a spider. Spiders are called Arachnids after Arachna. Cultures that value the spider may find that dreaming about them represents something aside from manipulation. For example, in a culture where farming is a means of life, spiders can stand for prosperity, since they eat pests and represent good growing conditions. On the other hand, in situations where a person is afraid of spiders, such dreams may not be as welcome. Scientists have discovered that memories of your ancestors can be embedded in your DNA, Your ancestors' experiences can actually change your personality, bequeathing anxiety or resilience, by altering the epigenic expressions of genes in the brain. It has long been assumed that memories and learned experiences built up during a lifetime must be passed on by teaching later generations or through personal experience. However, scientists have discovered that it is possible for some information to be inherited biologically through chemical changes that occur in DNA. So, if you, for example, dream frequently about spiders, it could be because of your ancestors who had a good or bad experience with spiders. Many theories have been put forward as to why we dream. Sigmund Freud proposed dreams exist to fulfill our wishes. His theory has been rejected by most modern scientists, though. It's often suggested that dreams are a side effect of the sleep cycle. Dreams usually occur during rapid eye movement, or REM sleep. This stage is thought to serve several functions. To rest a part of the brain, since some areas are active while others aren't, and to replenish brain chemicals, such as neurotransmitters. Deidre Barrett, a psychologist at Harvard University, has studied the subjects of dreams Dreams are highly visual and often illogical in nature, which makes them ripe for the type of out of the box thinking that some problem solving requires, Barrett said. Scientists have found examples of almost every type of problem being solved in a dream, from the mathematical to the artistic. Before you start to panic when you have a dream about spiders and look for people who've been manipulating you, keep in mind that dreams can be influenced by a number of things, such as fear, smells, noise, and even Earth's magnetic fields. Not a very exciting account, but my granddad always said that one of the houses he grew up in as a child was haunted. Back in the 1940s, He said that people weren't so aware of the paranormal as they are now. It was not like it is today with movies and ghost hunting shows on TV. He moved into a house in the countryside with his parents. His father worked on a farm in Lincolnshire, and he had said that things would happen all the time in that house. He and his mom saw a young man covered with mud walk through the door of their house and through to the other room. His mother went chasing after this man, trying to find out who he was and why he was in their home. They couldn't find any trace of him. Granddad saw something standing in the door of his bedroom, and his mom said that she felt that she was being watched a lot in that house. Strangest thing was the time my great-grandfather was standing outside talking to himself. Granddad's mom rushed out and asked him what the problem was. He said he was just talking to a gentleman about his garden. She asked who the gentleman was and, more importantly, where he was. Apparently, great-grandfather looked shocked because when he looked back, the man had disappeared. He always claimed the man must have slipped away, but granddad said that he had been talking to himself. There had been no other man there. Eventually, they moved away after my great-grandfather lost his job but I do believe that my grandfather experienced something strange in that house. He was too much of a serious man to make things up, or even make a joke out of such things. When Weird Darkness returns, the crew of 309 aboard the USS Cyclops disappeared without a trace, and now, 100 years later, we are still left with more questions than answers. Plus, wander around one particular U.S. park and you may come across a soldier who lost his head to a cannonball. Those stories are up next. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow, but rather than me telling you about it, how about I let one of my weirdo family members tell you about it? Kitty commented, My husband works out of state the majority of the time, and when he left, he wanted to take his MyPillow with him. That's how much he loves his. And Kitty's trying out her own MyPillow as well because she heard about them on Weird Darkness and was able to get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code WEIRD. That's MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. wherever there has been great suffering, people are always seeing strange things. These are the words of Edward Tinney, former historian and chief ranger at Chickamauga Chattanooga National Military Park. Tinney, who worked at the park from 1969 to 1986 and also spent time working at the battlegrounds at Shiloh, Tennessee, said ghostly sightings at the Chickamauga Battlefield or any Civil War site are not uncommon. Tinney said the legend of Old Green Eyes, the ghost who is said to haunt the battlefield in various forms ranging from a Confederate soldier to a green-eyed panther, has been a part of Chickamauga battlefield lore since the last shot was fired at the bloody battle that claimed 34,000 casualties September 19th and 20th, 1863. The tales of Green Eyes and other phantom sightings stem from the soldiers who lived through the war between the states," Tinney said. Green Eyes is rumored to be a man who lost his head to a cannonball, frantically searching the battlefield at night for his dislocated body, Tinney said. History says ghosts in the battlefield, such as the Green Eyes tale, began happening soon after the war in 1863. Those who've lived after the war are the ones who started the stories, he said. The more you get removed from the war, or any kind of pain, the more glamorous it gets." Tinney said, wherever he's been, whether it's on a Civil War battlefield or in Europe where he fought in World War II, there are incidents and sightings that cannot be explained by human logic. One of the earliest ghost sightings shortly after the Civil War ended is documented in Susie Blaylock McDaniel's book, The Official History of Catoosa County. Jim Carlock, an early resident of the post-Oak community, writes in McDaniel's book about returning home from a centennial celebration on Market Street in Chattanooga in 1876, a mere 13 years after the bloody battle. Carlock writes, Did you ever see a ghost? They used to see them on the Chickamauga battlefields just after the war. Carlock goes on to write that, while passing through the battlefield or near it, the exact location is unclear It was dark and there were no houses nearby when he and his friends spotted something 10 feet high with a big white head. He said he and his companions were in a wagon and a Mr. Shields was riding horseback. Carlock said Shields rode up and hit the ghost and a baby cried out, and the ghost said, let me alone. He said the entity appeared to be a ghostly apparition of a Negro woman with a bundle of clothes on her head. Tinney said that out of the 34,000 casualties killed or wounded at Chickamauga, only 4,000 are believed to have perished during the battle, but the historian estimates close to 70% or 23,800 soldiers perished from their wounds when the fighting ended. Out of the thousands who passed on, many may still be buried on the battlegrounds, but the exact number is unclear, he said but the Civil War is not the only source of death that may have imprisoned lost spirits at the battlefield. The hill behind Wilder Tower saw the deaths of many soldiers, mainly from typhoid fever, during their training and encampment on the battlefield in preparation for the Spanish-American War. According to various sources, other tales claim Green Eyes existed before the Civil War and circulated among the soldiers during the fighting, or that the spirit existed as early as the Native American occupation of the land where the battlefield is now located. Tinney said that during his tenure at the park, he saw something one night that he could not explain, and believes he came face to face with the undead inside the battlefield. The historian said that one day in 1976, about 4 a.m., he went to check on some battle reenactors who were camping out in the park. He said that while walking near Glen Kelly Road, he encountered a man over six feet tall wearing a long, black duster with shaggy, stringy, black waist-length hair walking toward him. From the man's body language, Tinney feared he was about to be attacked, so he crossed to the other side of the road, he said. When the man became parallel with Tinney, he turned and smiled a devilish grin, and his dark eyes glistened. Tinney said he turned to face the man and began to backpedal, as his companion did as well. At that moment, a car came down a straightaway in the road, and when its headlights hit the apparition, it vanished. Since Tinney's sighting 27 years ago, several residents have experienced unusual activity in the park they cannot easily explain. Fort Oglethorpe resident Denise Smith said she encountered a ghostly being with green eyes on a cold, foggy night in the park in 1980. Smith said she had just gotten off work at the Crystal Restaurant in Fort Oglethorpe and was taking a shortcut through the park on her way to her home on Cleo Drive. She crept her 71 Roadrunner slowly through the fog-enshrouded park about a half-mile from Wilder Tower. "'It was raining and foggy, so I was going real slow,' she said. "'I was going through the S-curve past Wilder Tower when I saw something big in the road about eye level, and all I could see were these big green eyes. It was so foggy, I couldn't see a body. I got closer, and it just disappeared. Smith said she always thought the tale of the ghostly green-eyed beast was a myth, and never would have believed it in a million years. But now, she says, she won't step foot in the park after nightfall. Green Eyes, in its various forms, is not the only phantom people claim to see in the park. Tinney said there's also a ghost believed to haunt Snodgrass Hill, which saw some of the fiercest fighting, and is home to the Snodgrass family cabin, which served as a field hospital to both Union and Confederate soldiers during the battle. The specter, in the form of a lady in a white wedding dress, known as the Lady in White, is searching for her lover, Tinney said. Other stories of hauntings on the battlefield include visitors' accounts of hearing gunshots, hoof beats, or smelling the strong scent of alcohol. Sam Weddle, chief ranger at the park for 11 years, said the National Park Service has no official opinion about the legend of Green Eyes or any of the other ghostly tales that float from the confines of the park. There are apparently a lot of local stories circulating that we don't have any official knowledge of, he said. We don't say yes or no. We just say we haven't seen anything yet. We don't deal with ghosts. We don't have folders and files on ghosts or green eyes. Laura Gilstrap, a lifelong Fort Oglethorpe resident, said that when she was 16 years old in 1990, she and about 10 of her friends were enjoying a hayride inside the battlefield when the unexpected happened. She said around dusk, the group decided to take a break around Wilder Tower. Off in the field, near the tower, they spied a flaming torch that would disappear, then mysteriously reappear again. Suddenly, the kids heard a horse's hoofbeats, and a skeleton in a Confederate soldier's uniform appeared to dismount from a ghostly horse with green eyes, Gilstrap said. She said the skeleton constantly repeated the name Amy before disappearing for good. David Lester, Civil War enthusiast and reenactor, said about five years ago, he and some of his fellow reenactors were camping out at the battlefield as part of a Living History Days, an event that gives park visitors a first-hand look at how soldiers lived during the war. Lester said several of his comrades wandered to a neighboring camp to say hello to their fellow soldiers. The men talked with the neighboring campers for several hours before returning to their own camp to sleep for the night. When day broke, the men went back to the camp to wish them a good morning and see how they were getting along. But they were gone, Lester said. There was no sign of their campfire from the night before, not one trace of any human occupation at the site, only undisturbed land. On October 20th, 2001, three women decided to delve into the ghostly realm of old green eyes and communicate with the phantom firsthand. Olivia Newton, Terry Kimbrell, and Jennifer McEllenan, all members of the Foundation for Paranormal Research, a self proclaimed non religious, non scientifically oriented investigative group specializing in ghosts and other paranormal phenomena, spent the night near Snodgrass Hill, where most of the Green Eye sightings are believed to originate. McKellenan reported that she and her partners felt surrounded and melancholy throughout their camping excursion that night. The trio reported taking pictures of ghostly mists and colored orbs emanating from monuments in the park. No distress call. No lifeboats adrift at sea. Nothing. Like it was plucked from the Earth by God himself, the USS Cyclops and all of its 309 crew were gone without a trace. The Bermuda Triangle has claimed its fair share of vessels over the centuries, but none are quite as baffling to Navy historians as the tale of the 1918 disappearance of the USS Cyclops. The ship never made it to its Baltimore, Maryland destination from the Brazilian port city of Salvador, and a century later, people are still wondering what peril befell it. Named for the fierce one-eyed giants of Greek mythology, the USS Cyclops was a beast of a ship. At 540 feet long and 65 feet wide, it was the largest collider in the United States Navy and had a cargo holding capacity of 12,500 tons. Upon the completion of its construction in Philadelphia in 1910, newspaper headlines touted its size, calling it a floating coal mine. When the United States entered World War I, the Cyclops was outfitted with 50 caliber guns and helped to shuttle doctors and medical supplies from Baltimore's John Hopkins Hospital over to France. At this time, Lieutenant Commander George W. Worley served as commander of the mighty ship. It was in early January of 1918 that the Cyclops was assigned to refuel British ships off the coast of Brazil. Less than two months later, it would be gone forever. After arriving in Brazil with 9,960 tons of coal for English ships, the Cyclops loaded its hull with 10,000 tons of manganese ore that would be used for munitions and began making its way up the Atlantic. Its destination was Baltimore, and while there were no stops on the schedule when the Cyclops departed Brazil on February 22nd, it did stop in Barbados on March 3rd. Commander Worley reported that one of the ship's engines had become inoperative because of a cracked cylinder. The ship would depart for its Baltimore destination, roughly 1,800 nautical miles away on March 4th, but would never make its scheduled March 13th docking in Maryland. The USS Cyclops was gone forever, without leaving a single clue. It would be lost somewhere in the triangular region bound by Bermuda Miami, and Puerto Rico, another victim of the mysterious Bermuda Triangle. What happened to the Navy shipping vessel has been a source of debate for the past century, with no clear answers rising to the surface. More than a hundred ships and planes have disappeared within the invisible lines of the Bermuda Triangle, and the efforts to locate the lost Cyclops were exhaustive. Navy ships scouted the route that the Cyclops was believed to have taken and crews radioed day after day for any sign of contact. All of it proved fruitless. Several theories about what happened to the ship and its men emerged in the weeks and years following its disappearance. The possibility of an attack by a German U-boat was brought into question, but not a trace of debris was ever found. Others claimed that rough seas could have sunk the ship that was already overloaded with its heavy manganese ore cargo. That could have been a possibility, but no storms were reported, and there were no distress calls from the ship. Like other disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle, some speculated that the Cyclops was sucked down into the ocean's depths by a giant sea monster or supernatural phenomenon. Of course, the Navy didn't give much consideration to this, and instead turned its focus to the ship's commander. One of the more intriguing theories concerning the ship's disappearance revolves around its commander. Lieutenant Commander George W. Worley was born in Germany as Johann Frederick Wickman, and changed his name after coming to the United States. Worley was reportedly disliked by his crew because of his frequency for berating his men and punishing them for the most minor offenses. Speculation arose that he was pro-Germany during the war and may have turned the Cyclops over to the Germans, though no German records have ever been found to back up this theory. There have been moments where it looked like the mystery of the fate of the Cyclops might finally be revealed, but they never panned out. In the 1960s, a Navy diver believed that he had located its wreckage off the coast of Virginia which would have backed up a rumored sighting of it in this area by a molasses tanker, but the search turned up nothing. For the Navy and those who had relatives aboard the ship, the USS Cyclops remains a tale of tragedy that ends with a question mark. "'I just want her to be found,' said Marvin Barash, the great-nephew of one of the men who was lost with the ship. I want the 309 to be at rest, as well as the families." Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series. The latest video is entitled, Ghost Photos That Defy Explanation. All other Weird But True videos are available for anyone to see on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. Patrons also get exclusive content, such as chapters of horror and paranormal audiobooks that I'm narrating as I record them, often weeks or months before they become available to purchase. I'm currently narrating the audiobook The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by G. Michael Vasey. And next I'll be narrating 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons by Daniel C. Opara, and after that… I'll be narrating UFOs, Chemtrails, and Aliens – What Science Says by Donald R. Prothero, Timothy D. Callahan, and Michael Shermer. You can become a patron right now for just 5 bucks a month at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Family Facebook group, get stories I didn't have time to use in the podcast, and more. If you want to win some FREE Weird Darkness merchandise, it's easy to get your name in the random drawing each Monday. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you'd like. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. A new drawing every Monday, and this week the winner will receive a Weird Darkness throw pillow. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media. Text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. You can drop me a note at WeirdDarkness.com, and if you listen via Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. I might read your comments on the show. Shogun Assassin 69 says, The best. It's the best podcast for this subject matter. Great stories and the best narration. Nothing else even comes close. Keep up the great work. And 6Dark6Soul6 from the UK says, Superb podcast. Only just stumbled across this podcast, as I'm into all things weird. I work 12-hour night shifts, so this podcast shall help me get through the night. Eloquently read, fella. Keep it up. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Bermuda Triangle Vanishing of the USS Cyclops was written by Joel Stice for AllThat'sInteresting.com. The Confessions of Mickey Sliney was written by Robert Wilhelm for MurderByGaslight.com. The Legend of Green Eyes was written by Kevin Cumming for NorthwestGeorgianews.com. Eight-Legged Nightmares was posted at MessageToEagle.com. A Strange Haunted Incident in Lincolnshire was written by James and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. Ghost 911 Call was posted at GhostsAndGhouls.com and Vegetable Men, Space Fairies, and Other Truly Bizarre Alien Encounters was written by Brent Swanser for MysteriousUniverse.org. Music in this episode provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, remember, Psalm 34, verse 4, I prayed to the Lord, and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears." I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness.